0: So should we do a cold open about our t-shirts then?
1: Yeah, we've got... If you're you're listening on the
0: podcast, then we're both wearing Jeremy Corbyn t-shirts.
1: Yes, mine is one of the the vintage um, July 2015 hashtag Jeremy for Leader t-shirts from before Jeremy was on the ballot. So white on red.
0: All right, so yours is like cooler. You were like, before it was cool. Mine's like, mine's the one that was designed by Angry Dan, who is a Hackney resident. Oh, I think he's in Walthamstow now. Yeah. And like, yeah. he was outed in outed. I mean, there was an entirely ridiculous story about him in the Daily Mail because the t-shirts came from a sweatshop, apparently. Because obviously, you have to, if you want to make a t-shirt, you don't actually make the t-shirts. You make a design and you give it to a company. And the companies always use sweatshops. The same thing happened to Russell Brand. And obviously, Angry a <laughs> whole now. Obviously, Angry Dan had nothing to do with Corbyn's campaign. He just wanted to make a t-shirt, but the Daily Mail were like, Corbin supporting. T-shirt man, uses a sweatshop, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: But the people we used to make this sweatshirt, we're getting them made in sweatshops. Look at it, it's a really brilliant sweatshirt as so well. I really like this, but it was apparently made in a sweatshop. Now, obviously, I didn't know that, but the company we used, even though we got assurances that they were doing it ethically, aren't doing it ethically. I mean, what can you do in a situation like that? What degree of diligence are you expecting of me? Is it the Daily Mail trying to help? God, we've got to help Russell stay on track. Or is it the Daily Mail just want to destroy any anti-corporate voice. We should like, think about some of the other companies that use slutty sweatshops. Topshop, American Apparel, Abercrombie & Fitch, Burberry, Nike, Adidas, IKEA, Walmart, Monsanto, Kraft, Nestle, Dole, Malan Promark, Joe Fresh, Bomb March, for Mango, Benetton, Disney, Licenza, US Military, Victoria's Secret, Gap, Alexander Wang, Microsoft, Apple, Zara, Samsung, Starbucks, and Toyota. So obviously, Daily Mail won't be accepting any advertising on their website or in their newspaper from any of their companies because we know that Daily Mail's really against. I mean, they're ringing up Bangladeshi sweatshops all the time. That's what the Daily Mail's about. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome to Complaints on a Podcast. Uh, we are talking about The Guardian. This is part two. And uh, before we begin, let us just say, like the video if, if you like this channel and you, you want to. Uh, if you're not convinced yet to like the video, then then keep watching and hopefully at the end you will.
1: Just if you like the t-shirts, just like the if video. Like
0: the t-shirts, yeah. If you like the Daily Mail, why not? So we're talking about The Guardian. So last time we talked about uh, some articles talking about Corbyn. But today we're going to look more at international politics covered by The Guardian, uh, starting with uh, Desmond Tutu's obituary which was a really good obituary, really uh, nice and complimenting him in lots of ways and talking about not all of the things he did, but many of the things that he did and, and many of the uh, so, sort of uh, political stances that he took. Uh, but there was there was one omission. Now, you know, you could say, uh, one glaring omission, <laughs> you could say, you know, The Guardian, it was, it's a long article and maybe The Guardian just didn't have time to fit it in. But, Thankfully, because The Guardian has lots of helpful readers, some people put that big omission in the comment section, and that was that Tutu was an advocate for Palestinian rights and uh, for the Palestinian solidarity movement, and uh, it wasn't in The Guardian article. I mean, maybe they just forgot about it, or they couldn't fit it in, right?
1: It's interesting if you contrast, say, The Guardian's obituary with the tribute to Tutu's work that Democracy Now! put out. And how they do a very far-reaching view of his work, but how they put Palestine into that because it was so central to what he was doing. Because he saw a a parallel between the structures of apartheid and racism in South Africa and the structures of apartheid and racism in in Palestine and Israel.
0: Yes, so uh, that wasn't mentioned in the Guardian, but then some people put it in the comments. And rather than being grateful to these comments, the Guardian deleted them. Um, and I don't know how many there were, were deleted. There was, we're going to look at a few examples that were we'll posted in another article, but a number of comments were deleted f- by the Guardian to their own article. And again, you might say, okay, well, maybe these were, you know, people that were really angry that they hadn't included this and therefore that came out in their language and it, it just wasn't very pleasant to read. Uh, and so the Guardian was like, We obviously love that you're talking about Palestine, but just not in this way, because you're, you know, you know how s- sometimes people that support us of Palestine are framed as a little bit aggressive. You know, I've 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 seen that framing
1: myself. I'm not so as aggressive, way. but a little bit anti-Semitic. A little bit oh,
0: anti-Semitic.
1: Yeah, or a lot ab-semitic sometimes, yeah. That
0: was the phrase. It was against the Guardian's guidelines, this comment.
1: (laughs) Violate the Guardian's community standards.
0: Community standards, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, And where would we be without those? So this is the comment that violated the terms or whatever. (laughs) It's a pity that this fine obituary makes no mention of Desmond Tutu's stand on Israel and Palestine. He was uniquely well placed to judge whether Israel's policies and the OPT amounted to apartheid. The fact that he said they did made an important contribution to the struggle for justice in Palestine.
1: So OPT um, is the Occupied Palestinian Territories.
0: Why would you delete this comment? I mean what could what could you possibly find offensive in it?
1: What violation can you find? It's a violation. No, a
0: violation of uh, of the community, the, the yeah. Guardian's fostering. Um, I mean, I was going to say, you know, it's a pity, that's, that's sort of a bit damning of the article, right? It's a pity. Yeah. It does say it's a fine article, but maybe that's sarcastic. I don't know. You know, could you, it's a pity that this fine obituary It's like, I don't know, like, how can you read this and think like, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. But if you did, if you did think that saying it's a pity was too much, then this next one is uh, incredible. So. This one, this one was also deleted and this one starts, an excellent obituary <laughs> uh, that, that amply demonstrates, uh, the I think it means breadth uh, and depth of Desmond Tutu's moral compass. Uh, this also extended to his staunch defense of the rights of Palestinians. So I'm just gonna stop for a second. So he's, he's complimenting the article. Or name, but Sorry.
1: Or she, or they.
0: I mean, I would, I would assume with the sort of aggressive language and stuff that it was a man, you know, always saying these comments that you've got, you just got to delete them. Um, anyway, so uh, they say that um, it's an excellent obituary. Um, and they're sort of like, and here's another great thing about him, you know, and it's like, you've written a great thing and I just want to add this great thing and we're all just celebrating his life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and, it, and it goes on the rights of Palestinians in the occupied territories, who he believed were suffering similar apartheid policies experienced by South Africans. In 2013, he told the Washington Post, I wish I could keep quiet about the plight of the Palestinians. I can't. The God who was there and showed that we should should become free is the God described in the scriptures as the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's being done to the Palestinians at checkpoints for us It's the kind of thing we experienced in South Africa. Sadly, many of our contemporary political leaders are currently doing what Desmond Tutu could not do. They are keeping quiet. So Tutu couldn't keep quiet on it. The person that made this uh, comment, they couldn't keep quiet on it. They had to express it and get it on the Guardian's website. Uh, The Guardian, however, not only didn't mention any of this in their obituary, but they then deleted this comment, which is like the nicest comment I've ever seen. I don't know.
1: So you have to think, okay, why is this comment violating the Guardian's community standards? Within which frame of reference is it possible for that to be true? And it's not because it's it's um, the language is abusive or aggressive, as you say. So the only thing it can be is because it brings in the issue of Palestine and of is- Israeli apartheid. And that's the same with the other one
0: and it's and it's not even that it's this person that's bringing it in this person is quoting tutu and so it's adding further information to who he was and i guess the only thing you could say is that the guardian see this um belief of his this statement is not something to
1: celebrate this is something that you deliberately erase as offensive as a violation that's an extreme position for the most Liberal newspaper that we have in the mainstream to take, and that's a, a a result of the whole anti-Semitism smears that the Guardian have produced. They've painted themselves into a corner, and they cannot even allow comments about Desmond Tutu's opposition to Israeli apartheid underneath an article underneath the victory.
0: Uh, yeah, so um, quite naturally there was a, there was a backlash against this, and the Guardian did eventually. Put the comments back. Uh, but they didn't apologize.
1: But they did publish one article, I think, in the kind of comment section, which was an opinion piece entitled When Desmond Tutu Stood Up for the Rights of Palestinians, He Could Not Be Ignored. So that sounds good, right? I think, oh, okay, they've done what they need to say.
0: Well, it could be ignored by The Guardian, who would delete your comments and not mention any bit. But yeah, okay. This was another article in The Guardian. So this is like the yeah. look, we we also acknowledge, (laughs) begrudgingly acknowledge this as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. we tried to ignore him. I mean, stand on Palestine. (laughs) Yeah, we tried, but then
0: (laughs) now we're having to write this article. (laughs) God, he's he's right.
1: (laughs) So this is how it starts. Even amid the torrent of praise for the revered former Archbishop Desmond Tutu in a day since his death, the anti-apartheid champion is not being universally mourned. Alan Dershowitz, the renowned US constitutional lawyer and ardent defender of Israel took a moment to brand Tutu as evil and the most influential anti-Semite of our time. Why would you start an article about Desmond Tutu's <laughs> staff of with Alex Why would you call the guy who's basically um, a shill for Donald Trump? And why would you call him a renowned US constitutional lawyer and defender of Israel like he isn't also someone who was very close to Epstein and in all those kind of logs and so we don't know what you know how many what sexual crimes he's committed why do you start an article about Desmond Tutu with that why do you start an article with him being smeared what is that what work is that doing why not just write about his stance on Palestine what it meant to him the connections he made with his own struggle why is that the opening paragraph and I'm just going to read the final paragraph but ultimately Tutu's intent was not to condemn his cause for forgiveness fitted with his belief that it's an essential step towards justice and peace. A view central to his chairing of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Tutu saw how everyone was liberated, white people included, when apartheid ended in South Africa. He wanted Israelis to liberate themselves from the burden of apartheid too. Of course he did. But what does it do when you end on the fact that you want to liberate Israelis? When you're writing about Palestinian rights. Well, again, it's like where the Guardian, how the Guardian choose to frame this article, how they choose start and how they choose to finish it, how they choose a, oh my God, it would be just great if we could have some kind of reconciliation between these two sides. And clearly Desmond Tutu understood that this is, apartheid is not about some kind of process of reconciliation initially. Of course that has to happen, but it's about a reconciliation based on understanding of power inequality and addressing that power inequality of radical measures to address that and The Guardian's not really anywhere with
0: that. No, and it and that's the case with The Guardian is like in the key moment, when the fight's taking place, they're on the wrong side. And then when it becomes inevitable that something's gonna happen, they're suddenly like, oh, we were here all along with you guys and we're just glad to see this all happening. You know? Or when the moment has passed and it becomes impossible, then they'll be like, oh, if only we could have done that thing. Do you remember, it, it would have been great. And you know, that's what I feel has happened with Corbin. And uh, we're going to move on to Julian Assange. Um, yeah. Yeah? yeah. And I feel that's very much what's happened with uh, Julian Assange. So we're going to look at a few articles. Says before we started this, I sort of went through the search bar thing in The Guardian, where you can look at all of the articles written about some topic. And so Julian Assange, you go, so starting from this month. And you look at the articles now, this month, they're all very serious articles about press freedoms and the espionage act and uh, that the UK shouldn't deport him. Uh, and as you go back, it sort of starts to become uh, more about Julian Assange is a crazy guy. He's very unlikable. He's a weirdo. He's hiding in the embassy from rape allegations in Sweden. He's pretending that it's that he's going to go to America. That's never going to happen. Why would that, why would America ever get involved? You know, and it's, and it's like- and He's so it's colluding 30...
1: with Russia. Big thing about him colluding oh, yeah. with Russia, <laughs> yeah, colluding
0: with r- Trump. So.
1: Yeah. So basically
0: there was a moment right when the world's eyes were on Assange and that was many years ago now and the, the, like you know and I, I don't know just this talk came to me do you think uh, there was a moment when when Corbyn was uh, on stage at Glastonbury and there was a moment where Julian Assange was standing outside uh, the Ecuadorian embassy and there were thousands of people there and it was everybody was talking about this situation and in those mm-hmm. moments that's when the Guardian is very sort of cynical and damning of the situation, uh, damning of the individual, buying into all of the slurs, uh, uh, smears, sorry, that were sort of, uh, you know, happening in, in other parts of the press and they sort of legitimize that. And then after it's all over, uh, not with Corbyn himself, he'll, I don't know, he'll be redeemed, but but certainly like radical policies, they've become redeemed. And it's, you know, almost inevitable now, it seems, that Assange is going to be, uh, the, it's certainly not going to be the people that save him. Like, yeah. I don't know if he'll go, but it's re- really up to the Americans at this point. Yeah.
1: And, I mean, the Guardian is interesting historically, isn't it? Because the Guardian did publish, they were the, the outlet in the UK for all the WikiLeaks stuff. The the whole tranche of stuff that came through Chelsea Manning, um, the collateral murder video that showed, what Americans were doing through their wars on terror, um, a whole load of stuff that came out, and they published it quite bravely in the face of brutal opposition from from security services in the UK. Um, and they did the same with Edward Snowden. And they they I mean that's a really good article that we can link to about how the security services made massive efforts to terrify the Guardian staff, sending people in to smash up their their equipment, even though they, it was all for show because the stuff that they had was saved somewhere else as yeah, well so, yeah
0: that's to be fair i'm i was giving a pretty damning impression it's yeah, not I'm the, the guardian it's... like in, in that moment in particular
1: yeah
0: i mean i don't know how because it was coordinated between the guardian um what's it, the german newspaper like if you if you have that kind of environment then it that's quite clever because each yeah. paper knows that the other one could publish and yeah. they're going to lose out and so you know, in a way it's like um, they, may, they may be rather than not publish these stories, but they know they're going to get out there or, you yeah. know, so there might be that element to it, but, but to be fair, The so Guardian, they did publish them and they I supported that's Julian Assange initially.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting about this article is it, it tracks, there's a history of the way that The Guardian responded, particularly post-Edward Snowden, when they really got, got um, hammered by the security services and co-opted um, and the way their policies change and the way that, whereas Alan Rusbridger, who was editor then, who's very strongly supportive of Assange, very strongly supportive, of, probably one of the strongest voices in Guardian support of Assange, still, still a little bit equivocal, but fairly good, who was editor at the time, who knew how to handle security services. And then Catherine Viner, who became editor afterwards, who had no interest in maintaining that that strand of work. And really there is no outlet for stuff like that anymore. If there's Edward Snowden leaks, if there are, um, Chelsea Manning leaks or anything comparable to those again those will not get published anywhere in the in the UK because the Guardian won't publish them and it's it's unclear whether any other paper would do that
0: yeah and that's and and that change in the Guardian that's something that's not reported on because who would report on it but the Guardian right the only sort of I mean it's something that you will hear left-wing media outlets talk about but that's they're cranks, They're left-wing media outlets, right? The Guardian's The Guardian, it's a great newspaper. It, you know, it's unchanging, it's always a bastion of the left. It was when it made the leaks uh, and it still is today, right? And of course, it's possibly that's, that could be true, but it, equally it could have changed, right? It's changed editors. It, it clearly, I mean, there was a lot of, as you say, the secret services came in and smashed up their computers. Uh, that may have scared them. They certainly didn't support Assange for a long time it now seems like it's inevitable that he's going to be extradited and now they're sort of coming back quite weekly as in as in <laughs> not weekly articles but just week with their yeah. response right at the end and so you know it's it seems to us anyway that the Guardian they lost their what's the phrase lost their
1: their backbone I backbone
0: know. Oh, yeah on on on, yeah. on, on this issue, and I think maybe on generally on, on sort of pushing for more left wing politics.
1: So the article brings up some really interesting parallel processes that happen alongside them not publishing anything threatening to the security state. They published puff pieces. So they were given interviews with senior staff in the security services. And really, they asked them softball questions and they were kind of pushing the kind of security state line through The Guardian it was kind of advertising masquerading as journalism or propaganda masquerading as journalism. And they also had a a big investigations um, staff at the Guardian, most of whom have been made redundant or moved into other areas. So really that investigational work and and staff, I mean, isn't there. And, And that includes Ian McCaskill, who was the main journalist in the Guardian who was working on the Snowden investigations. right. Yeah. So they,
0: they replaced the editor, they got rid of most of the investigative team, and they suddenly had these sort of um, insights into the security services, the security services were sort of feeding them stories, which you do with a, a paper that you don't think is going to be hostile to you, right? It's yeah. like, you know, you scratch my back, whatever. Um, and yeah, yeah so was there, a, was there a change in the Guardian's approach? It seems like there was.
1: There was a committee called the d Committee, which is like the security services like handling the media. I mean, maybe it's not the d Committee. They issue D notices which tell people what they should and shouldn't do in the media. And this committee co-opted like somebody from the garden onto it. He was on there for like a few years. And in the minutes which came out, it, it says, Oh, it's great that we've got the garden on board. That's been a major change. So they certainly think there's a change. I actually was interviewed by someone from GCHQ once. I was hey, thinking about that. So a friend of mine wanted to work. I was I did maths at university, and a friend of mine wanted to work at GCHQ, and you have to have like your friends have to be interviewed to check you out.
0: Oh no! Well, you you did you let the side down?
1: I don't think you got a job there. Okay, so it was fine. So they
0: didn't they didn't really thoroughly uh, interview you. <laughs> they would have no, found out.
1: i I did say to him, I don't think that. I mean, I wasn't as like prominently left wing then as I now as I was then. Ah, that's wrong. I wasn't as kind of out about being left wing, I think, in the way that I am now back then when I was like 20. But um yeah, I definitely think I wasn't the best choice.
0: <laughs> well, that's where they, they find the weak links, right? They were like, yeah. this person looks suspicious. We'll need to we'll need to further inquiry.
1: Yeah, I think they were obsessed with the fact he'd been to Russia. So some things never change, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, no, they don't <laughs> when it comes to Russia, certainly not um Yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I like that. Like, you go to Russia. How long is there? Like two weeks. Is that? It's totally. Yeah, I think it was a time. <laughs> so this is like
1: a long time. Ago. This is thirty, perhaps thirty two years ago or something. You no. Know?
0: Um, anyway, yeah, but they also speaking of Russia, the the Guardian published this article, which is quite amazing. And uh, they never went back to discuss it again. It's just one of these things. They just threw out there. Which uh, was in 2018 about uh, Manafort, who was uh, working closely with the Trump administration. I don't know if it was at the time Trump got through quite a lot of people in his uh, during his uh, term in office. So, um, but it's talking about this guy Manafort who held secret talks with Assange in Ecuadorian embassy. Sources say that's the headline yeah uh, so it states that this is what happened then it's also say i quite like that i do, i thought you had to put allegedly but you can just say i'm, I'm going to use that from now on just just someone said
1: <laughs> you, need, you need two you need two sources apparently that's what they've got
0: oh uh, right. well, well what i was, was going to talk happened? about that so they it, it changes i mean each statement has its own thing so sometimes the source is said sometimes it's a well-placed source sometimes it's two sources and sometimes yeah. it's one source. So,
1: okay. so you just need one person.
0: <laughs> well, it could be it could be one person, multiple personalities. It could be two people that agree on some things, but disagree on the other. And they, they take the hottest take. Yeah. Like, oh, that's useless. What, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> Give us something better than this guy. And so they do. But anyway, so there's this whole article, which is based on these sources. Um... And it's it's quite an incredible article. Normally you would think, okay, there's some other circumstantial evidence that they're gonna bring in, but there isn't. So, yeah. so basically this guy Manafort uh, allegedly, sources say, visited Julian Assange a number of times when he was at the Ecuadorian embassy. But later in the article it says, visitors normally register with embassy security guards and show their passports. Sources in Ecuador, however, say Manafort was not logged. And that's kind of written like, that just makes it more suspicious because he was definitely there and it wasn't logged, but it could also just mean that he wasn't there, right? It's sort of- evidence. It could mean
1: that we're basically, we have no evidence apart <laughs> yeah, from these two yeah. people who exactly. may perhaps have a vested interest. I wonder if that could be going on. Yeah, um, well, so- we're not gonna worry about corroboration or the things- that The
0: Guardian's like, can't think of a reason why this guy from the Trump administration would visit Assange, you know, and they just, they say, you know, it. it this is to quote, it isn't clear why Manafort would have wanted to see Assange and what was discussed. Uh, But then later in the article, just by the by, they mention the revelation could shed new light on the sequences of events in the run-up to summer 2016 when WikiLeaks published tens of thousands of emails hacked by the GRU, Russia's military intelligence agency. Hillary Clinton has said the hack contributed to her defeat. So they're basically, they've got these sources that say that this random guy from the Trump administration went to the Equatorian embassy in London a few times to meet Assange. And maybe that happened and maybe that's evidence that um, there was coordination between Assange and Trump. And it's like, you're gonna need a bit more.
1: Yeah. The, and it's who are also- these sources?
0: I mean, what are you... Yeah, you know, I really... imagine how, how weak how weak that is.
1: Yeah look this is what the article's doing. It's trying to feed a Russia gate conspiracy theory. It's trying to feed a theory that Trump and Russia worked together and that's where the leaks about the Democratic National Committee came from, which were basically a way of trashing Hillary Clinton, which is a way of making um, her lose the election. And so it's an interesting point that it's not that Hillary Clinton fixed things and that her staff fixed things that's a problem. It's that it was found out and it was leaked at a dodgy moment. But there isn't really a lot of evidence for, for Russian complicity with the Trump campaign in that kind of deep way of, of Trump as a Russian agent and very close. So it's all kind of very conspiracy-like. And I was just thinking about the left. So I listened to, as you know, Ghost Stories for the End of the World, and they did an amazing episode on Patty Hurst, who's, who's kidnapped by a group called the SLA, and then she became a member of that group. And there's a kind of interesting moment when he's talking through the evidence around this being a setup by the American secret services, intelligence services, where he says actually there is evidence that Patty Hearst visited the key person within the SLA when he was in prison before the SLA was founded. And again, it's a situation where there's no record of her name, where you know maybe this happened, maybe it didn't, but it's relying on sources. And he's just much more responsible and careful with how he reports it, with how he marshals other evidence to suggest that this might be plausible. He's very cautious about making claims. And we can just see again how the center, when the center does conspiracy theory, it does it without any reflection, it it without any criticality, it just pumps out conspiracy theories.
0: Yeah, and that's because there's going to be no pressure for them to be accountable, right? If you if you make a bold claim like this uh, on the left, the sort of counter the sort of centrist narrative, then you're you're gonna get the guardian coming down on you like a ton of bricks. Well, I
1: mean, <laughs> Hillary Clinton's on record, isn't she, as saying she wanted to get a, um, a drone to take Julian Assange out. I imagine that you can't not be affected by that, maybe. Um, but it clearly was in public interest to leak the stuff that, that was leaked. Probably. I mean, that's,
0: yeah, that's the main yeah. thing it comes back to. It's like, oh, well, you shouldn't leak stuff uh, because you're interfering. It's like you, you're just leaking information. Yeah. And it's I, like maybe Hillary Clinton shouldn't write couldn't the not have aim. done that
1: stuff, Yeah. yeah. Um, and all her aides. But also Hillary Clinton is not a reliable source on why she lost that election. She's not gonna say, you know what, I should probably have gone to states like Wisconsin and campaigned them all. She's <laughs> to Say It was all that stuff from Julian because it's in her interest to do that. So citing Hillary Clinton as as the evidence that that affected the election is just really Well, Russia, I mean,
0: because it's not just that, there was also Russia actually were involved, it's Russian bots, right? I mean, there's no end to the reasons why, like how Russia influenced the election.
1: So in the last video, we talked about um, the Guardian's position on the Iraq war and the way they came out, it was the Observer, but it's a sister paper, came out editorializing um, strongly for war in Iraq and not simply for war in Iraq based on weapons of mass destruction, but based on regime change and on a kind of very, um, sort of neo-colonial approach to international relations that we're the good guys going in to sort out the world, joining with America, the other good guys. Um, Let's just ignore the fact that they're run by George W. Bush because there's lots of people around him who are okay. Um, It's more or less their position. So I think we have to see the Guardian's international policy in the kind of broader context of kind of a liberal um, interventionist approach
0: that embodies a lot of values of colonialism in it. Yeah, and also it feeds into uh, then, obviously when the war didn't work out so well, the, um, it's a bit late because we're already in Iraq. Uh, the Guardian will obviously come out and and start questioning all of these issues. And I think it's that thing in that key moment when the, when the protests were happening to stop the war, the Guardian was sort of ambivalent. You know, the, I'm, su- I'm sure there were columnists in the Guardian, and they, they allowed there to be uh, articles written that were anti-war. But at the same time, the Guardian didn't take a stance where they were anti-war. You know, they were they'll 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 always sort of uh, allow for the option uh, to sort of try and push the progressive agenda down, not push yeah. it, <laughs> push it along, <laughs> uh, and. Yeah, and I think that's the same with Julian Assange, right? In the in the key moment after the after the, um, the leaks, but in the key moment when the full force of the US government turned on Julian Assange at the individual as as sort of representation of WikiLeaks, uh, and obviously he was the key guy. In that moment, that's when the Guardian were like, oh, actually, yeah, uh, this guy he's he's a wronging, so maybe he should be legally extradited, and who cares?
1: With Assange, there's a kind of really obsessive focus on him as an individual, and what his whether he's a good person or not. And that's a really dysfunctional way to see the issue of press freedom. I mean, obviously, if you want to destroy press freedom, you go after someone who, for whatever reason, is an easy target, and people are gonna have quibbles about getting behind. But people have to be able to see that this is not really about whether Jim you know, Assange is a good person, or yeah. you know, I
0: mean, the demonising, the demonising of individuals and of groups of people. I mean, that's that's what they specialise in. And, and rather than having arguments about why we have this position and why your position or this group's position is wrong, it's like you know, Corbynites are all angry, delusional, or in the Polytombia article we did last time that yeah, sort of delusional, religious, head in the clouds. Like you're either like too innocent and naive, or you or you're just an angry mob. Julian Assange's case, he's a wrongen, Corbyn, he's an anti-Semite. And it's like, you're living in like, where's the actual argument about policy? And like, it's just, it's it's, it's like, it's basically like a reality TV show. And like, who's in, who's out, you know, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's weird that people also wouldn't reflect on the fact that if you are in a position like Julian Assange's in, or Jeremy Corbyn's in. I and mean, Jeremy Corbyn is amazing that he hasn't really become, uh, he's stayed as a lovely person. But if you're in a position where you're getting attacked all the time, it's going to change you. That There are going to be cracks in who you are. I don't know how you survive in those circumstances. The last thing we should be doing is using the, the result of the fact that you're being persecuted as a reason to persecute someone. Yeah. And it's just... ridiculous thing to do it shows no empathy at all and it takes away from the issue um and from this the the fact that we just need to be in solidarity with people who are standing for for the things that are important in the world solidarity has to be about what side of the struggle people are on not whether you want to go yeah whether you want to hang out with someone it's just that's a Bizarre, bizarre take. And it's, yes, well,
0: but, it, but of course it is about what side of the struggle you're on, but they don't want to admit what side they're on. Yes. But they I think that's a take. great, it's a good way to end it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so if you're on our side of the struggle, chuck some money into the Patreon account. Yes. Um, that's, that's how advice. we
0: know that you're a good person.
1: <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, as always, like really good to talk to you, Daniel, about these amazingly really disturbing struggles. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, it's really nice. Um, yeah, I'm really enjoying doing the podcast, and I uh, hope the, that we uh, continue to do it. I mean, the only, I mean, I'm happy that, to keep doing it, but I just hope that people uh, want to keep listening and engaging. And I guess giving the video a like, leaving comment, it's, it really sort of makes us sort of, you know, spears us on to do it. Spears us on? Is that Spurs? Spurs us on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, um, thanks for supporting the channel. And um, we'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Bye.
2: When someone in the public eye tells the truth, you've got two options. You can't destroy the truth because the truth is obvious. like if someone's talks about inequality or press corruption, corporate corruption, inefficient governments that are operating above big business. you can't that's true. That's palpably true. So you have to destroy the person.